0: On this episode of Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy, you will hear from Dr. Daniel Kovaugh, Vice President of Publishing at ASHP and the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP, as we explore tips and tricks for leaders getting their work published. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Weber, Chief Pharmacy Officer and Administrator of Pharmacy Services at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Powered by The Ohio State University Lashley Leadership Program, this show is designed to keep current and aspiring health system pharmacy leaders up to date with issues, trends, and best practices affecting our profession. You can learn more about The Lashley Leadership Program and The Ohio State University's College of Pharmacy, MS, and Health System Pharmacy Administration and Leadership by visiting go.osu.edu forward slash pharmacy leadership. That's go.osu.edu forward slash pharmacy Dan is a toxicologist by training and was educated in Pittsburgh at Pitt School of Pharmacy and Duquesne University. While practicing as a toxicology leader, Dan was responsible for implementing the nationwide poison control number. And for those on the podcast, it is 1-800-222-1222. This standardized number dramatically improved the management of poisoning in the United States. Dan then began his career at the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, or ASHP, in 2002 as part of the ASHP Foundation. Dan then transitioned his leadership role several years ago to the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy, AJHP, a journal read widely across the world by pharmacists in all practice setting. Dan has brought great ideas, new formatting and content, and innovation to our professional journal. He has also authored over 120 peer-reviewed articles, opinion pieces, book chapters, and abstracts. Now this episode will explore tips and tricks for pharmacy leaders in all health system practice settings, job title, and years of experience in publishing their work in peer reviewed journals. Contributing to general knowledge through publishing is an important role for all of us, especially leaders in health system pharmacy. So with that, let's jump into our interview with Dr. Cobot. Dan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, Bob. It's so nice to be with you today.
0: And it is always. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Dan. Again, I've, for the podcast listeners, I've, I've known Dan for a very long time from his pharmacy student days at Pitt, and I can tell you that this is going to be a fabulous podcast. So, Dan, you've, we've, we've heard a little bit about you in the introduction. Is there anything else you'd like for the audience to know about you?
1: No, but you know, Bob, one comment that I would make it relates to your opening, and, and this is really for the uh, the younger Uh, professionals who might be listening to this podcast is one of the the mantras that I tend to have is that life is not linear. And when I think back to those days at Pitt, when you were teaching us about heart failure as probably P4 pharmacy students back then, uh, I I could never imagine that we'd be having this type of conversation today. And I just say to the young people, uh, really uh, dream big, and explore every option that presents itself to you because it's, your your career will be more circuitous than it is linear.
0: Yeah, and that's really great. That is like super, super good advice because I, I was thinking about this the other day as well. I was walking over to the College of Pharmacy and I, I went into one of the classrooms and I thought to myself, Dan, I, I was in this classroom 40 some years ago, not even knowing that at some point in time, I would be leading a very large pharmacy enterprise at the Ohio State University and sitting in the back of the room, listening to lectures and taking notes and taking tests. You know, I thought of my career as, as, as linear and moving forward in a linear fashion, but you're right. It's a very circuitous path. And for all of the listeners on this podcast, Taking that circuitous path and taking risk is so, so important. So that's a really great, uh, great advice for our, for our, our listeners. So HHP is, is, in my opinion, a very respected journal. I, I, I see it as the gold standard of our profession, uh, Dan, in terms of academic uh, and scholarship. Now, so what led you into your career as editor-in-chief of HHP, and how does one find themselves interested and qualified? for these types of
1: roles. Well, it it really does go back to that circuitous path, doesn't it? It, Yes. As I started off as a young faculty member, and I always had an interest in research, and I I think it probably relates in many ways to some of the people that I had as early career mentors, people like Ed Krenzelok, who was then the director of the Pittsburgh Poison Center, or Sandra Schneider, who was an emergency physician who was the medical director of the poison center uh, when I was a, a fellow. And these folks all had a deep interest in exploring questions. It wasn't just about doing research, but it was really about answering those unanswered questions. And so from early in my career, I had a real interest and I, I moved around a bit. And again, talk about circuitous, because I started off with human volunteer research, did some animal research in the early days. And then as I went to the American Association of Poison Control Centers and then to ASHP, was doing more with larger data data sets and yes. more, more observational research. But as I look at my career, Bob, it's it's interesting. I think that I've what's led me to the position of editors of HHP is that I've had a chance to exist in multiple dimensions of the research enterprise, the, the researcher, the uh, grant officer when I was at the ASHP Foundation, the reviewer for both grants and journal articles, and now on the the side of dissemination of work, the journal editor, and so when the position became available, it's one of those things, and again, I, it's one of the things that I would say, especially to the earlier career practitioners who are listening, trust your gut, because my gut told me that this was the right thing, and it's it really was the culmination of a, a career of invested in various aspects of the the research enterprise and uh the other the other piece of it was as an irb member at the university of rochester so it felt like the right fit Uh, i don't know that there is any one recipe for who makes a good editor-in-chief i think some people bring to it as, as stellar academic credentials i have to say, I am not a trained researcher. I am a clinician who had a fellowship that had a research component, but in much of what I've learned, I've learned through experience. But you may have someone who comes in with a very stellar research background. You may have someone who comes in with a really solid understanding of the, the practice. So a variety of types of individuals can be very successful as journal editors. That's interesting. So... Do you see a lot of work come across your
0: desk? So, uh, based on what you see, why is publishing so important? Why, why, sh- why should we be contributing to the literature in a fine journal like AJHP?
1: Well, it's, it's imperative for advancing practice from my perspective and uh, through a variety of types of work. It may be original research that that will change our approach to some aspect of patient care or pharmacy operations, for example. It may be publication of a guideline or it could be a publication of An experience that uh, a department has in changing some approach to practice, regardless of what type of submission we're talking about, the really important part of it, why it's important to publish it, is that it has the ability to affect practice, uh, and ultimately, hopefully, with the end goal in mind of advancing the care of individual patients or a population of patients. So when I I
0: think about that, and that's really a good point, Dan, when I think about it is uh, several years ago, our group published uh, one of the first barcoding. Uh, papers, uh, it was in an emergency medicine journal because we did it in the ED here at Ohio State, and I, I found out that uh, many, many people were considering implementing barcoding in the ED, but really weren't uh, understanding what the benefit would be, and so I was really surprised pleasantly as to how many people used that article as a lot of uh, justification uh, for implementing barcoding in the ED. So that's, that's that would be an example. I, I, you know Obviously, I would assume that the work, that's why it's important to publish, is that to get the word out so that other people can use your work as justification for growing uh, their own programs. And the other piece that also reminds me is back in 2003, Dr. Ed Krenzlock, who was obviously the head of the Poison Control Center, he and I worked on a study with a resident that looked at the stability of atropine when you prepare it for mass terrorism. And Dan, that was also one of the papers. Ed said to me, this paper is gonna get a lot of people interested in this topic. It's really important to contribute to the knowledge. And I'll be darned, he was, he was correct. We got so many responses to that. So anything we do, anything we publish that's of significance, uh, in, a, in a quality peer review journal has a, a significant impact just on how we practice pharmacy. And that's just a couple of examples. From a from a leadership perspective, do you have any examples from what you've seen in the journal that would be appropriate for leaders to publish that have made differences? Obviously, the barcoding was one, but any other ones that you can think of, Dan?
1: Well, there's it, there are a couple of ways that you can come at this, Bob. Mm-hmm. First, the the original research uh, yes. perspective, and and your barcoding example is a, a great example of that. Things that leaders have done to implement change in their departments and in their institutions. Maybe it's across a now a multi hospital health system, for example. And if there's original work, either as research or quality improvement that there are solid outcomes that can be used as again as you mentioned already as exemplars for other leaders for other departments that type of work is extremely important and is the the bread and butter of what hhp publishes however yes. there's there's some other really important pieces that leaders can publish opinion pieces as. yes editorials commentaries reflections to think about individuals experiences uh through through the the lens of uh, an editorial or through a commentary or through a, a reflection i think of one bob that you and some of your colleagues from Ohio State wrote several years ago prior to my tenure as the editor of H H P that I had a chance to participate uh, in in acquisition of the article because I became aware that you had a resident who you'd accepted oh, into the program yeah. who had a physical yes. disability. Yes, and yes, it, absolutely. And you, the, you uh, and the, that that resident at the time, as well as one of your other colleagues, somebody who's now one of our colleagues at yes. uh, ASHP, Mike Donio, wrote mm-hmm. an incredible piece that talked about integration of a resident with a pretty profound physical disability into a residency program in a pharmacy department. And that was written as a reflection that's yes, you're right yeah equally important that type of contribution And I will make a comment about that <clears throat> in that
0: I, I was very uh, I was very much wanting to do it and, and I so so I sat down with Mark Christ who was the who was the resident and at first he was very hesitant because obviously doing those getting that sort of stuff out publicly, is, you know, obviously a bit of a risk. People, you know, feel a bit vulnerable doing those sorts of things, but he agreed and we, we walked him through the paper and I got that honestly, and I had forgotten about that. I'm so uh, thankful that you brought that up. Uh, that, that, that's one of my proudest publications. And, and actually I also get a lot of people commenting on it as well. It's cited uh, as well uh, in many, you know, you know, writings as well. So, yeah, that, that's really interesting that you brought that up. I had actually forgotten about it, but thank you for bringing that up. Um, so, okay, let's say I have a, I have an idea. Let's say I, I do a project. I'm thinking this might be something that we get published. What is your thought on what's a good idea in terms of if I've got, if I've got an idea? What are the criteria for what's a really good idea?
1: Well, I always go back and start. And I think uh, there are a couple of ways that you can tackle this issue of a good idea. And one is it relates to the idea itself. And then there's another piece of it where I think that there's a, especially for a researcher who's just getting started, there's a humanistic side of it. But in terms of evaluating the idea, what I, many of us, I bet you included, Bob, turn frequently to the holly's finer criteria as as an as a good rubric to to say does this make sense and for the, the folks who aren't familiar with finer it's a mnemonic that is is the is the work feasible is it interesting is it novel is it ethical and is it relevant and Those are all incredibly important questions to ask, because if you have a great idea, but you just don't happen to have a large enough patient population to complete the work, uh, there's a real feasibility issue there. On the interest side, I always When I talk to residents and uh, individuals who are new researchers, I've really focused heavily on this interest piece because writing a manuscript, conducting a study and completing it, taking it all the way through publication is a lot of work. And you have to be interested in what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's highly likely you won't be successful. Absolutely. And,
0: and I'm so glad you said that because for all the residents listening to this podcast, please hear this very clearly. In your major project in your residency, you've got to have a passion for it. If you don't have a passion for it, you will not get it completed. It will, it will be hard. It will seem like work instead of fun. And as Dan and I talk a lot about things being fun, right? Well, I've in fact, when I talk to Dan, I usually say, you know, how's your job? And he'll say, I'm having fun, or I'll say, I'm having fun. But you've got to have fun at this, and you've got to have fun writing it. And that's really, really important. So let's say now we have this great idea that, sort of, that meets the finer criteria. We, we do the project, and then we've got this paper. We write this paper draft, and we say, we want to publish this in the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy. Briefly, sort of, what are the steps in
1: getting something published? Well, and I would even take you back a couple of steps, Bob, okay. and say that there are a few things that I would get settled early on. Uh, first of all, the, the author structure. Have hmm. that discussion very early on in the process. And, uh A a first point to have it is when you start to assemble the research team and to some degree it becomes obvious who's the lead person and so who might be in the first position, might be the corresponding author who might be in that um, last or senior position on the list. And I, I think negotiating the author structure early on is really important. And I've I've experienced this. I recall a paper that I was involved with as a, a fellow and my expectation going into it was I was gonna be the second author. And it turned out that I was the third and I was disappointed by that and didn't agree with that decision. And I, um, I may not have been able to change the outcome, but the one thing that I wish that I'd done differently was have that conversation earlier on.
0: Yes, yes. And I've, I've actually had that as well as why I thought I would be the first author and I was actually the second author. Did I did all the work, it was the idea. And then all of a sudden, no, wait a minute, I am. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, having that discussion
1: early on is so critical. And, and then the next piece that, uh, really helps in terms of efficiency and moving things along. A great deal of your manuscript can be developed even in before the study is complete. You, yes, you yes. can write your introduction. You and and I'm a big believer in the relatively short three to four paragraph introduction that lays out the rationale for the the issue Mm -hmm. that's being studied and ends with the objective of the study. You can write that, you can write your methods, and you can even start to outline what you expect to address in your discussion before your study is completed. So I think that that is a, it's a time saver. And it's something that really can help the, especially a new author can help them get started. And, and then the next step that you ask, you know, you've made this decision that you want to publish, where do you go from here? I think that's basically what you were asking. And yes. it, is, mm-hmm. it is selection of a journal. Uh, first and foremost, uh, uh, what journals scope? fits the type of study that you, you've you conducted. So if it is a study on barcoding in the emergency department, for example, uh, that would be within the scope of HHP. But identifying uh, which journals have a scope that uh, makes sense for your work, which ones have the audience? You know, Bob, you made that comment about uh, publishing it in an emergency medicine journal. Yes. Because because it was a, a barcoding implementation based in the ED. I mm-hmm. could uh, have a debate with you about that and argue yes. pretty passionately that, well, maybe your audience should be pharmacy executives who are will have to ultimately uh, justify implementation of this costly technology in the ED. So uh, looking at your audience, certainly folks are interested in the reputation of the journal. And here, one thing that I would just remind uh, our listeners, especially again, I keep going back to the newer researcher, be very careful that you do not become the victim of a predatory journal. If Mm. a journal is willing to have you pay a manuscript submission fee and basically accept your manuscript without any peer review or a very superficial peer review, that should be a big red flag to you. So be very careful in selecting your journal based on its reputation and quality. Follow the journal's uh, guidelines and prepare to work hard even after you've submitted your first manuscript because if the journal has done their job, they're going to come back with a, 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 probably several revisions that they want you to make to get the manuscript in shape for acceptance into the.
0: Church. Yes, and that was uh, that was one of the key reasons I asked that question, Dan, is because I think people think the work is done when they submit it, but actually the work just starts, and it's it's more about the diligence and paying attention to detail and really truly responding to the. Uh, reviewers' comments directly and clearly so that you as editor and the reviewers understand that you understand what their issues are and you've addressed them. And I think that's a key learning is that there are steps in obviously submission, there's formatting, there's those sorts of things, but then there's the revisions. And then there's coming up with the galley proofs. And I think the other piece of it is once an article is accepted for publication, then the journal will send us, as you know, galley proofs, which will look, that'll be what the journal, what the article's gonna look like. And reviewing those carefully is really, really important because you don't wanna have to submit any errors or corrections. I mean, obviously errors happen in typographical errors, maybe how something's listed on a table. And so being, really paying paying attention to that, uh, would you not agree
1: is really important? Oh, absolutely. Review of the galley is the last opportunity that the author team has to ensure that everything is accurate. And let's face it, what we're doing has significant implications. If if it's take a different type of article, if it's a clinical review, for example, that somehow mistakes the dose or a rate or a concentration that can get propagated over time, so it's it's really critically important and I would also go back to your earlier comment on revisions it's It's why passion about the topic is so important because by the time you get to revisions, you're getting time you need that stamina
0: right to move through and just power through It's like my dad said the hardest part of part of a project is the final ten percent. <laughs> You know, and I, I, always, I always remember that, Dan, you know, when I do things, and particularly when it comes to just any project, you get 90% of the way, and you're like, oh, that last 10%, that's what takes the effort. That's what sort of takes your, you know, diligence, your stick whatever you want to call it. I guess the question that has also arisen is that, you know, in this time of really rapid change, you've got lots of uh, ways that information can get out to people, how has AJHP kept up with sort of balancing the quality of the peer review process to getting information
1: out in a timely manner? Well, I think that COVID 19 is a great example. We started receiving our first COVID 19 manuscripts very early in April, and we recognized very quickly as all journals that are publishing this type of content recognize that we really didn't have the luxury of time in terms of getting it out there if it was going to make a difference for how we use this information to care for and to prevent covid 19. So some of the steps that we took is that uh, specific to this, but we we shortened the peer review process. We asked our editors and our peer reviewers to commit to a rapid turnaround, uh, ideally seventy-two hours to get oh, the peer okay. review out. We. Also, it shortened the revision process. We asked authors to get their revisions back to us in a much shorter period of time, less than a week. And when you talk about innovations, we made a step as a journal to begin publishing what was the author's final edited submission. So, the first thing now that HHP readers see when they go to our site for advanced articles is an article that is not uh produced uh in the AGHP style for example it looks much more like a, a word document but it has all of the information that will be in the final article but it hasn't been typeset yet and we now we we now publish those and and many journals are doing that the other things that are are really really important is just taking different approaches to disseminating your work you know some authors are not are a bit reticent about they don't want to brag about their work but we really we really encourage social media communication about the publication we do a lot of it actively on the ASHP and AHP side but we also encourage authors to be very active on social media communicating about their work because you know the largest percentage now Bob in the the old days And you and I both remember back when you would go and flip through the pages, um, the tissue paper pages of of Index Medicus, and then, and then we became fortunate. We had PubMed, but now over ninety percent of articles are discovered via Google or Google Scholar, and a much, much fewer, far fewer, uh, via PubMed, for example. So, yeah, yeah. So it's. It's, it's important to think of uh, think about communicating the way we communicate today if you want to get your information. Yes, and so we've talked about
0: a lot of really neat things around publishing. We've talked about the idea, making sure that it's robust, and then once you've got an idea, obviously uh, following all the steps, but keeping uh, your diligence up to get the paper done and making sure that the revisions are appropriate, but all importantly, reviewing those galleys, but getting most, but most importantly, getting information out and publishing information is work and it is a commitment. And I'm hoping that folks who listen to this podcast will, will see the value of that and the value of really general knowledge transmission. So sort of in the final three or four minutes, Dan, you know, for us to know you a little better, obviously I know you very well, but, For the audience's sake, what are some things you're reading, some podcasts you're listening to, or conversations you're having that has made a personal or professional impact on you?
1: Well, I I have to say that I listen almost on a daily basis to the New York Times podcast, The Daily. Oh, that is a very, very good
0: podcast.
1: Uh, I used to listen when I run, I'm a a pretty avid runner and I've used running uh, and really just physical conditioning to, as part of my overall strategy to, uh, as you would say, powering through COVID-19. And uh, so I used to listen to music a lot when I, um, while I was running, but now I've actually listened, started listening to the daily. I, I love, Michael Barbaro's style. I like I'd like to emulate him. And so that really keeps me up to date on what's happening at, really in current events and I was introduced about uh I'd say a year and a half or so ago to an author who's been around for a while. I just hadn't um read his work, but Abraham Gacy, who mm, is, yes. is yes. a physician and a novelist who, even when he's writing nonfiction, has the tremendous ability to write nonfiction as if it's fiction. He is just such a gifted author. And I've read a couple of his books uh, in recent, over the last year, one was one of his originals, Cutting for Stone, which was magnificent. But another one that I read, and it, it is nonfiction, And it goes to that point of reading something. I actually had to look back and verify that this truly was nonfiction because he has such an amazing style, but it was called The Tennis Player. And Mm. it was very interesting because it was about the relationship between a faculty member in a school of medicine, the mentoring relationship, I should say, and uh, his, uh, a medical student who he met during the course of uh, the medical education journey and they who both had a deep interest in tennis which is something um, i'm I um, ha- have peaks and valleys in terms of my own tennis playing but but i I really enjoyed it I enjoy reading Vergey's work and this particular one because of some of the dimensions of the mentor and mentee relationship. Mm. And, it, mm-hmm. it, it had a very difficult component to it because there was a component to it that that relates to substance substance use disorder mm. so it's um fascinating work uh that for that for Gacy. so he's always on my at the top of my list. Oh, that's really interesting. I'll have to try
0: to i to try to look at that. I know the people I know have have read some of his work and particularly my wife has read um uh, some of his work as well so well, Dan, it's been great to talk to you, as always. I Every time I talk to you, I feel like we just sort of left off where we ended the last time. So <laughs> I truly appreciate you being on the show and participating in this podcast. And uh, again, uh, the profession is very proud of you and what you have done for our uh, constituents who read the journal for the change that this journal has made in the lives of our patients through program development and new data is really directly related to your leadership and so the profession thanks you and i'm really grateful to have somebody like you on our show and so uh, with that uh, any uh any parting words of advice to our residents by the way i always ask that question as well any words of wisdom you'd
1: like to give them well, I think I, first I want to thank you, Bob, for all of those kind of things that you just said. And actually, my response to you, really, I think in my response to you is that wisdom that I conveyed to the residents. I, by no means do I get the individual credit for anything, any of the successes we've had with HHP. It really does take a village. It's the it's the authors, it's the readers, it's the reviewers, it's the editors, and all coming together it's our our publishing partner in this case Oxford University Press it's all of us coming together to produce a information that we really hope will advance care and so I would say that to to the residents it it, it really does take a village it takes a team and um, it makes sure you stay committed to that as part of the process.
0: Well, thank you again for, that's, th- th- those are awesome words of, of encouragement. And I know there's residents out there that are struggling right now with things, their research project, COVID-19. So obviously, you know, hearing Dan uh, saying to use your resources is really important. And Dan, thank you again for being on the show and have a great
1: week. My pleasure. YouTube off.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy. And if you found this interview helpful to your own professional development, please do us a favor and share the good news with your colleagues and leave us with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts each and every week.